Hi everyone, welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Monday through Friday, we bring you San Diego's top news stories. Saturday, we take you behind the scenes in our newsroom, showing you how editorial decisions are made. And on Sundays, we highlight fascinating people in, around, and from San Diego. My guest this week is Dr. Krishnan Chakravarti. Dr. Chakravarti is an anesthesiologist who specializes in pain management. He was trained at Harvard Medical School and Johns Hopkins, and today he teaches at UC San Diego. He works at the VA hospital in La Jolla and also runs his own laboratory. Dr. Chakravarti is interested in using technology to measure and reduce pain, and he recently started a study of multiple sclerosis here in San Diego and is looking for patients. On top of all of this, he has founded many a startup. In this conversation, we talk about those, his latest projects, his biggest failures and how they shaped him, and why he loves Oprah. Here's our conversation. Dr. Chakravarti, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, my first question for you is, do you just have so many roles teaching at UCSD, working at the Coastal Research Institute and the VA hospital, and you've also founded startups? That's a lot. So what drew you to this line of work in pain management? Yeah, um, great story. Um, so, you know, I, um, I was born in the southern tip of India. My uh, Originally, my father... Uh, in grad school decided that, you know, coming to the United States was a good thing to help foster our education. And like any immigrant family, we ended up moving um, to the U.S. And he did his, a lot of his work in uh, nuclear physics and mechanical engineering. Um, but, you know, that really, um, growing up in Buffalo, New York, I, I was part of the typical uh, South Asian culture where the only way you would have made it is if you're either an engineer or a doctor. So I kind of got into that whole pipeline of thinking for a large part. But then I went to University of Chicago. And to be honest with you, um, till my third year of medicine, I was pretty much um, thinking that I wanted, didn't want to do anything medical related. I was really interested in research and uh, math and science. An interesting tidbit, um, one of my close friends who, um, whose wife's um, now sister was married to Raja Krishnamurti, who actually was uh, Barack Obama's um, Senate strategist. And at that time when I was... Um, he was like, oh, you got to meet uh, uh, Barack Obama. He's going to be amazing. He was still a faculty there at UFC. So um, long story short, I kind of was really interested in finance and law. And it took uh, a sh- kind of three years to finish college and spend some time. But then eventually I made a full circular route back to a MD, PhD program in Buffalo. And at that time, I um, really one of the big life lessons I learned is that, you know, taking opportunities to do everything, not just from the science and medicine, but um, spending time at the CDC, developing vaccines and coming back and doing my first startup uh, in grad school. I just have had a very rich and um, you know diverse background in terms of my own education. So I came to Hopkins where I did my anesthesia residency and at that time, um, I recognized that, you know, different specialties of medicine have their own um, rewards and they're challenging in their own ways. And something that really drew me to chronic pain is I think there's just such an incredible amount of the interpersonal relationship that drives 
success for patients. And, you know, one of the fastest growing medical specialties today, um, I'm very fortunate to lecture on topics all over the world on this. And at the end of the day, pain is, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal article about 50.2 million Americans suffer from some form of chronic pain, about one sixth of the human population at some point um, has some form of pain. And it's challenging for these patients. There's so much cultural, environmental context that really drives them to come to these practices. And I think the ability for in a physician to take those own experiences and interrelate to your patients and help them um, address a very, uh, I would say, emotional as well as um, challenging time for them in their life, I think is really powerful. And I think um, I'm just super excited and humbled with the fact that I've been able to uh, I do it in the local community, but also looking at nationally and internationally, all of the things that we continue to do research on and uh, improve. It's it's really impactful when you see cancer patients that come in and their life has changed because we underestimate that pain is something, though evolutionarily has been such an important protective mechanism, it still can be very debilitating for patients when they can't really function. Mm. Um, I definitely want to ask more about your career, but did I just hear you say you're friends with Barack Obama? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's, it's amazing. We um, originally, so Raja helped him lead a state uh, candidacy at that time. And so he used to go, I guess, uh, Obama used to come to his house once a month. And uh, there's really nice pictures of him having all kinds of Indian food. So the story is that um, he's got a Blackberry that he only invited certain people to the inauguration. So Raja ended up going. But the the point was in that is I should have taken advantage <laughs> of that because he was like, oh, you should really meet this person. But when you're in college, you're like, oh, you know, you do the typical things in college. So, um, you know, who knows where well, we, our careers could have gone. But um but, you know, it's it's funny that we were in the same time at University of Chicago crossing paths. So pretty cool. Yeah, so amazing. Um, well, what I mean, again, you you have this really varied experience, have, you know, studied all over the place, traveled all over the world. Why did you choose San Diego? Yeah, you know, I think um, I was when I was trying to transition out of um, fellowship training at um, Mass General up in Boston, there were a few programs across the country that really um, helped in developing physician scientists. You know, the big challenge for a lot of us today, when you think about um, different specialties and the and the impact of innovation in moving um, different therapies from what we call the bench to the bedside paradigm, you need time as an important resource, whether it's time spent with family, time spent in the lab, time spent in uh, developing innovation. So very few program, academic programs in the country was, were offering that ability to do both a combination of research as well as clinical work. And I think it's um, it's led to some very amazing things that we are developing that we think are going to be really groundbreaking in medicine. But um, only, you know, USD was very unique in that they had given me uh, the combination of uh, putting some time towards research as well as clinical work. So, um, I, you know, I kind of gone down that path by investing right out of college to do do the MDP program. So this was kind of the next step in the evolution of that in terms of my own career. So it was really, I was fortunate, but, you know, I, I always say um, I can never complain about the weather because San Diego is like always kind of just perfect all year round. So 
I never really say a lot when people are like, man, winter sucks or this and that. <laughs> so I take, take it to the, uh, you know, I really do love this place and uh, enjoy seeing all my patients and probably plan to retire here. Yeah, definitely not a bad place to be. Uh, so you're working on a study of MS in conjunction with Rune Labs. Uh, what can you tell me yeah. about it? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's two elements to this. Um, you know, what what's really um, fascinating is that the story actually started in the 60s. Um, there was a very famous neurosurgeon by the name of Norman Sheely, and uh, he was kind of a pioneer in what we define as using electrical current to treat pain. So what happened was there was an oncology patient. And at that time, uh, Wall and Melzack, they were two theorists that um, had a simple idea or concept. The concept was that the nervous system is actually very unique in that when you have a injury that happens in, in the periphery, um, over time, you know, naturally it's a good defense mechanism because you can't put your hand on a hot stove and expect that you wouldn't feel pain because pain is what makes you move that uh, hand from that stove. But for a lot of chronic pain patients, for a large reason, that transmission that happens from the peripheral all the way to your brain is kind of in, kind of mix, mixed up and, and it just doesn't function the same way that normal people have that impact. So when you think about it um, and you think about your nervous system basically being a highway for all of this electrical current going from one area to the, to the brain, the hypothesis was that if I externally apply some kind of um, electricity that could that potentially block that signaling. So he actually, there was a palliative care patient and they implanted the first um, electrode leads um, and they got about a day and a half worth of pain relief. And that set a, a tremendous revolution in this concept that electrical current today could revolutionize the way we see the benefits of pain control, but we're seeing incredible things happening all over the world in, in the case of neuromodulation, which is looking at um, amputations being removed of pain or people with cord transection injuries that are coming back and are able to walk. And that has led to about 70 years of rapid progression in the partnership between industry, physicians, and the global medical community in the neuroscience space. And what we are getting slowly close to developing is very, um, very elegant systems that have the ability not just to stimulate the spinal cord, but actively record something from the cord in real time. So you can imagine the Nobel Prize was won for what was called a patch clamp technique, which was basically the ability to record real-time signals. Today, we have developed some of the best, uh, best-in-class closed-loop systems where you can actually measure electrical signals in real time. So the moment you can actually do that, it changes the paradigm. So for MS patients, the big challenge for them is when you think about how do I really measure outcomes of drugs that I'm titrating, how can I really say somebody is improving in the short to long term? How do I better design drug developments of the future where they're conducive to not just having a static time point every three to six months looking at measurement. Could we look at these complex medical devices that have come a long way and have been really rapidly innovated to better indicate whether somebody on a specific drug is doing well? So 
what the basic hypothesis is that demyelination, which is that, you know, MS is to some extent, the signaling in the nervous system gets less and less effective. Could I measure that in real time with some of these medical devices such that for the future, when patients are really getting on certain types of drugs that are very effective or disease modifying, could I actually have a real-time assay that can measure those changes um, with uh, neurostimulation and or neural recording? And what's really fascinating about this is that there may be a point where we are now starting to realize that a lot of neuromodulation therapies work by tempering down inflammation at the neural cellular interface. So you can imagine that there's a possibility that you may not just be getting an assay that's recording the effects of drugs that are being used in these patients, but maybe the electrical current may be a therapy in itself. So I think we are in a very um, interesting time in neuroscience. I think that they said that this decade, maybe century will be the era of medicine as we continue to push the envelope in, in different areas. But I think uh, the concept of using electricity as a therapy and a diagnostic modality is here to stay. Yeah, that's incredible. Recording your 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 spine. Um, so you're currently recruiting for this study. Could you tell me more about who you're looking for? Who who would qualify to be a part of this? Yeah, you know we're we're open to any MS any patient that has had a prior history of MS diagnosis. We would be open coming to this study. Um, at this point, it's really a feasibility study for us to start to understand how these. Um, signals can be recorded. Um, it's a very low barrier of entry for them in terms of just the ask. You know, typically this is just a, uh, a percutaneous insertion of these leads that we do. Um, and then the, the study duration is about seven days. So pretty, um, you know, we kind of do a screening. Um, so we have a newly founded institute now up in Carlsbad that's kind of looking at neuroscience and pain research. And part of our partnership with Rune is they've kind of really are the pioneers in looking at the ability to get aggregate data from a lot of patients and look through that data and understand what the implications of that is. So, um, you know, any patient that has had a prior history of diagnosed MS or um, has been on different, there's no prerequisite of they've been on a certain amount of drugs or not. Um, they're more than open to contacting us and we can kind of go through the inclusion criteria. But at this point, because it's a feasibility study, we're very open. The hope is that, you know, in the next uh, year or so, we will be partnering with larger uh, drug companies to better understand how our um, assay or uh, measurement tools can better um, give them direction on efficacy of these drugs. So uh, eventually this would be kind of a larger clinical trial where we would enroll them in a select criteria of um, placebo versus a treatment arm and look at how the assays are giving subtle differences in efficacy of these drugs and outcomes. Awesome. Well, I wish you luck on that. And I look forward to checking back in on the results. Um, I have a quick lightning round for you. It's just some kind of random sure. questions to get to know you better. But I was looking yeah. at your LinkedIn and I see that you're a fan of Oprah. I am also a fan of Oprah, or at least you follow her on there. <laughs> what is yes. that correct? And what do you like about Oprah? Oh, that, that's a, I mean, look, I, I think, um, you know, it's an interesting, uh, kind of the circle way of saying like, I, you know, I, I look at a lot of uh, people who have done very successful things. And I, I think one of the things that um, what I really like about her is that this generation, I, I really having a 
a seven-year-old daughter, I think we need to uh, have role models and leaders that can help um, show the gender divide that that is existing in medicine as well as everywhere. So um, to me, I think successful people of diversity, of um, women that have really done amazing things in their life should be celebrated. Um, and, I, and I tell this to my wife and my seven-year-old, she's just an amazing um, young girl that, you know, you can achieve anything that you want. I think um, we, I'm really hoping that uh, more women come into science, um, but, you know, there, there are people in our generation that I think um, young girls need to look up to. And I think she is a successful entrepreneur. She roots for her causes really well. And I think she brings discourse in the right way that I think uh, a lot of us should be learning and actually uh, emulating. Yeah, here, here, really well said. Who else do you admire? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think probably the other person uh, that has had a tremendous influence in my life is probably my, um, my family, but really my dad, you know, I, I think one of the big things is that we, a lot of us think that sacrifices are really easy to make in terms of family. But, you know, one of the things that I've, I've really picked up in him is that life is a lot about balance and uh, approaching um, how you do what you love in the time that you have and making sure that, um, you know, you make time for family as well as friends, as well as um, really prioritizing what you think would be impactful. So um, I, I think, you know, there isn't, uh, we can always probably come up with a lot of the celebrity names that come and go. But I, I think for me, he's been a very important part of my life and uh, an incredible lending hand of support. As uh, I, you know, I, I think um, the classic example is most boys always support their moms before they get married and after marriage, they're like, oh, wow, I totally understand what my dad was going through. So uh, I think we've really bonded, um, you know, and I think uh, he's just a wonderful human being. So glad to have him. Oh, very sweet. I'm sure that he will be happy to hear that. Um, well, I only ask this question because you work in pain management, but what's the most painful thing that's ever happened to you? Um, you know, I think the probably the hardest is sometimes, um, I, you know, I've had a, we've lost patients to terminal cancer. Um, it can always be very moving because I, I think that the distinction between chronic pain and palliative care, it can really blur the lines. And sometimes that's a very touching time where patients that have a very defined amount of time to live, it, it really brings into focus what are things that are important, but it also really magnifies the impact that you have because in those three to six months, pain can be extremely crippling, but you end up very emotionally, sometimes emotionally attached to the families, emotionally attached to the patients as they're going through the last segue of that journey. Um, and it, it can be challenging because suffering, you know, that an individual has not ultimately, unless you're to a certain level of empathy, you may have it, or you may uh, try to truly understand that, but it's hard for these families that are really with uh, patients that have terminal cancer and you're doing your, to give them any type of quality of life at that point. So, um, you know, I've lost patients in that way and it can be extremely, uh, heartbreaking, um, because you just, there's nothing you can do at that point, but, um, you can only do your best, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that being a part of your job, how do you prepare yourself for that or, or heal from it or just deal with it? It's, a, it's tough. I mean, I think no matter you ask the people that have been practicing medicine for 20 to 30 years or those that um, come out of training at one to two years. And at the end of the day, I think that part of um, part of the emotional intelligence is being able to recognize that um, you know, you, you should feel a certain level of empathy in that uh, in that area. And that's part of why I think certain people are fit for certain types of specialties in medicine. Um, but that being said, it also, you know, I've seen, especially post-COVID climate, a lot of the physician uh, specialties, is it's hard hit. I mean, I think there's a lot of challenges that health systems are really rapidly changing. It's very commercially driven. And within that context, I think it's makes it really hard for patients and physicians to have that same emotional connection. So, you know, I, when I was trained at Hopkins, a lot of the original founding fathers of medicine used to believe that the interpersonal impact of medicine was what was as part, as much part of therapy as the medicine that you're prescribing or, you know, the impact of touch and the ability to interrelate with patients. I think we're in a very different time where, medicine is rapidly changing. It's becoming more consumer centric. And I think that the challenge is that the two biggest players in terms of who in that interaction between the patient and the physician have very little say in terms of the care model and the care delivery. So I think the the vision of the future will have to change. I think drastic changes will be needed in healthcare to really make an impact. I do feel a lot of patients um, struggled through that process, especially post-COVID and all of the challenges with the opiate epidemic. I think we are recognizing that it's being magnified today more so than ever. So mental health, all of those challenges, I think are part of the you know um, overall questions around how the healthcare system delivery model works and whether we need to rethink through that. Yeah. Uh, well, really powerful. Thank you for sharing that and, you know, sharing your perspective and your experience. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about failures. I mean, clearly you're really successful. You've been to top universities and top institutions. You've worked at top institutions. Um, so you've had a lot of success, but I know that you're also in the startup space and in the startup space, right? We talk a lot about failing fast and whatnot, but like, how, how do you approach your failures? Oh, Christy, I could tell you, I have this uh, really interesting um uh, graphic and you know it's it's the best analogy for startups. So people, you know, the classic example that people think startups are a straight line, um, but then you have all of these squiggly lines in between, and people are like, oh, what does that mean? And then I'm like, unless you're in a startup, you have no idea. Literally, every day is sink or swim. So um, I think a certain personality definitely comes with uh, entrepreneurship. I um, failure probably I, I, my first. Um, so I'll tell you what we were working on was uh, a quantum dot technology. And um, at that time, um, QDs were slated to be one of the best uh, ways to do rapid diagnosis. So I started this thing where I had no idea I was going to win this business plan competition. So long story short, uh, we had about 35 companies. I pitched this idea and um, won the thing. So we got a bunch of money and um, it started to started to grow this thing. And I would, the first big challenge for me was like, I was trying to juggle medical school with this thing. But anyway, the first 
couple attempts totally sank. So one, we couldn't get the prototypes going and um, it was so frustrating because we had the wrong uh, talent that we thought was going to deliver, but just couldn't. And then the second time around, um, we totally picked the wrong specification. So we had a big, a big consumer that was going to kind of get us all out the door that didn't happen. So the third time, finally, um, we were really getting to go and, uh, and a lot of our uh, business was in the Middle East. So the interesting story there is a lot of um, the culturally, the context of business done there is there's very little uh, interaction in terms of how they propose a business deal. And so long story short, um, you think about the language barrier, we went down there, me and my partner, and uh, literally we're in this like room with this uh, other gentleman that we're making, a, uh, who's interested in potentially partnering with us. And, um, you know, we'd spend like 20 minutes talking about our idea. He like uh, reaches down into his desk, pulls a, um, a paper out, and then doesn't say much and he scribbles something. And um, he like slides it over to my business partner at that time. And, and you know, he had made a, um, a crazy offer. I mean, somewhere it's close to like 95 to $100 million to buy that business wow. uh, for 95% ownership. But here's the craziest part. Steve didn't want to do this thing. He was like, <laughs> oh, I don't want to give up 95% of my business. I was like, man, this could be to retire. <laughs> So the long story short of it was we walked away from that and I was like, oh man, like, but I always joke because, you know, my parents at that time were like, yeah, you're not going to do no startup, like give up your education. You're going to go to residency, do the whole, like become the doctor thing first. Um, but, you know, even after we walked away, we thought we had a great idea and it failed again. So you know, I think what the point in this is that um, now that I've gotten to this stage in my life where I, I advise a lot of different companies as well as have my own, um, those experiences, I don't take away from that because I think every, um, the biggest challenge for this generation, I think is, you know, we all think things can come to you without the hard work and the sacrifice. There is no substitute for that. Like it, it is purely, no matter how talented you are, no matter how much um, you've got the connections, it all boils down to the, the willingness to take the time to do stuff. And so I, I do mention that I try to say work-life balance, but I make it up with uh, later in the evenings after uh, everyone's in bed to try to catch up on those hours. So um, so my point is that nobody with, that is a measure of any great success and impact hasn't done it without a lot of sacrifice and hard work. So failure is important because I think it does teach you a lot of life lessons. And um, man, you know, who knows what, what would have happened? Maybe I wouldn't have been doing any of the stuff that I would have been doing if uh, we had decided to go the other direction. But um, they always tell that story because it's kind of interesting. Uh, how life has its uh, different pathways so yeah definitely what an incredible story that just unfolded like a movie you know it was so suspenseful yeah. I was like what is he writing on the paper are you gonna take are you gonna take the deal but um well so how many startups have you done at this point uh this is so we I'm on to probably my fifth or sixth um I've got three or four that um, one of them is two of them that are officially ones in the market right now that we're slowly rapidly commercializing all over the country. We've developed a, uh, I think a low cost solution to 
pain. So in fact, when you look at the ASP price of these devices, they're about $20,000 and they cost the health system about a hundred thousand. So one of the things we're working on is what's called a better together campaign nationally and internationally, where we are thinking about revolutionizing the way neuromodulation as a therapy works. So we've come down to creating some of the best in class devices at a price point of about a hundred dollars. And we think that pain when you think about these devices, can you create a system at that at, at that price, which allows access to the global community, whether there's a person in India, Africa, Nigeria, uh, or in, in California, um, we are looking at the ability to create devices at that price point where um, they can literally have the best system that runs off of their iPhone or Android platform and literally deliver an electroceutical therapy that at that low cost that functions really well. So um, we found some really interesting data that came through an NIH study that showed that, in fact, certain frequencies upregulate a lot of your natural serotonin and endogenous opiates. So we are literally trying to replace the entire pharma uh, opiate and large uh, uh, industry with something what we define as, as an electroceutical. So what really is the future is one day we would have low cost devices that support the very work that Rune and, and Coastal Research Institute's trying to do because it's one part that you create an assay, but the reality is it has to be something that can be broadly prescribed and broadly available to the world. And I think um, when you look at low resource environments like India and Africa, where they don't have $100,000 for an implantable and insurance companies that dictate that care, you need things that can rapidly revolutionize the healthcare system. And we think uh, we're on the precipice of that. Mm, that's awesome and a really noble cause. Uh, my last question for you is what do you like to do in your free time? What are you really into that has nothing to do with your work? Oh man. Yeah, I know. I, I was a avid, um, <laughs> I'm an avid, uh, I grew up playing. So upstate New York, we didn't have a lot of stuff. So we used to do a lot of, uh, tag football, but I played on the tennis and basketball team. So, um, this last year, um, our faculty have gotten together on Tuesday afternoon. So it started with a group of like four of us and, um, and uh, we ended up eventually now growing to 12 people. And so we go on the college campus and play basketball. But here's the funny part, right? So I just had my 40th birthday. And I swear, they think I'm like the most competitive uh, person out there with these all these college kids. So I'm out there like taunting them and telling them to come and play. But I could probably run up and down the court for like 30 minutes. But we laugh because all of the faculty together, we're a pretty fun group. So um, that pretty much occupies my Tuesday, um, Tuesday afternoon, evenings, actually. I sort of play basketball and I've been continuing to kind of spend a lot of time with my kids in terms of their uh, extracurriculars, whether it's swimming or other stuff. So that gives me a lot of joy, keeps me balanced. <laughs> awesome. What a great story. And I'm, I'm shocked that you're only 40 with all you've done so far. Um, well, I think that we're sort of nearing the end of our time together. You know, thank you for, for sharing your story. I, I guess as a final question, you know, what, what's next for you? Or, you know, again, you are young. What else do you hope to accomplish in, in your career? Yeah, I think um, I'm, I've finally seen some of the startup stuff taking off. I'm hoping that we, um, there's such a wonderful 
trajectory for research and science that's happening in Southern California. I think, uh, you know, whether it's this MS research that's going to dictate that part of it. And, you know, certainly uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. And I'm hoping this will reach out to patients that will come and look for the study if they're interested. But um, I am very excited about what all we're building. And um, who knows? I mean, I think uh, I, I take it day by day. Um, and I, the, the advice that people say is, is live your life to the fullest, make the choices that make you happy. So uh, I am very blessed to be in the position that I am. And I, I'm hoping that I can um, translate that happiness and and vision to the people that are maybe not so fortunate, but giving them some of the relief in terms of, you know, whether it's improvement in their life and pain or uh, other diseases that we're trying to actively treat. So um, very excited. I, I, I'm really looking forward to this being an even better decade for sure. Yeah, really well said. Uh, well, doctor, thank you again for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. <laughs>